0: We'll mm-hmm. Welcome to the podcast of Tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is our episode number 92, released on October 24th, 2018. Today we are going to talk about uh, the way Google is complying with the EU regulations regarding Android and uh, the money from Saudi Arabia in the European tech. In addition to that, we have two pre-recorded interviews for you. The first one is uh, with Gide Pridor. Uh, VP marketing at uh, Travel Perk which raised uh, 44 million US dollars in funding just a week ago and the other conversation is uh, with uh, Igor Zhadanov uh, the co-founder and CEO of Rido a company that has millions of paying customers across the world but is still bootstrapping its way forward <laughs> I am your host, Andre Degler, a tech journalist based in Amsterdam, joined today, as usual, by Natalie Novik, our research analyst and feature writer. Hello, Natalie. How is it going?
1: Hi, Andre. Good speaking with you. Everything's going really well over here. And as you might have heard from the podcast last week, I just got back from a really cool event on law and technology that was put on by the Law Society of Scotland. And one of the most surprising things I learned and maybe useful for our listeners is that you can be served a legal summons via Facebook Messenger or WhatsApp in the UK. So just watch your feed and um, watch out for that. Lawyers are really keeping up with technology, especially considering blockchain and smart contracts will be pretty disruptive for them.
0: Wow, this is really interesting. I mean anyways like a low in general like all these practices and all these people have been quite conservative and traditional for so many years so I'm pretty happy that uh, this is happening so any technology that can help uh, in that field is good even if it's blockchain so really good news and uh, now I think we can move uh, straight to the biggest deal of the week Uh, what uh, what was it
1: yeah, so there was a lot of really big deals last week and I think maybe there was something in the water over here. But the largest went to the UK, where True Phone, the eSIM mobile carrier that works with Apple, they've raised around of seventy-one million US dollars. The company is now valued at over 507 million U.S. dollars. So maybe we have a unicorn on the horizon. And we also tracked a number of further eight-figure rounds, so in the tens of millions in Spain, Sweden, Denmark, France, Germany, and Netherlands. So a lot of um, success stories around Europe last week. And if you're interested in getting more analysis about these funding rounds that we've been following for the last several years now, our paid subscription has all of them, so... That's something that interests you to check that out.
0: It kind of seems to me indeed that in so many cases this uh, we we kind of uh, see in these chunks of uh, uh, funding announcements that have nothing to do with each other, and then still they like come within one or two weeks. Would be re- would be really interesting actually to just uh, maybe uh, get all our data and uh, take a look at. Uh, Like certain weeks, like record weeks or record months uh, when uh, all these uh, large amounts in funding were raised.
1: Yeah, and and I tried to do that. So I kind of took all of the deals that we have and I kind of aligned them over the weeks and over the quarters to see if there's a particularly winning quarter or not. And unfortunately, you don't seem to find any particularly strong trends about, you know, this is a great week for fintech or this is a great week for biotech. You don't seem to find that, like kind of looking across the years, everything is so variable and it's always changing. And that's That's why it really makes sense to keep following them um, as best as we can, because there isn't really a common story that that we find too, too often.
0: Uh, Okay. Well, it still feels that way, though, right? It still feels like you have have these particular weeks when you just cannot stop writing about these bigger deals, and then you get another email and another email, and then what the hell, what is going on? But yeah, well, if statistics says there is uh, nothing to see here, then it's probably nothing to see here. Right, let's move to the stories of uh, the past week. Uh, The first one I wanted to talk today, probably predictably, is the next episode of the soap opera about this extremely healthy relationship between Google and the European Commission. Uh, You might remember that in July, the the commission fined Google uh, for 5 billion US dollars for anti-competitive practices. And uh, those practices uh, were uh, bundling of uh, the Chrome browser and uh, the Google search app with the Google Play Store. So what it means is that if you as a vendor of an Android phone uh, wanted to have Google Play Store on it, uh, Google would make you to also install Chrome and Google search. And of course, as a vendor, you do want uh, to get the Play Store because this is the gateway to most of the applications uh, in the ecosystem and uh, an Android phone without Google Play Store. Wouldn't really make that much sense. Although there are examples of that. Uh, There are some uh, phones in China, of course, that don't uh, have it. And uh, there are uh, devices from Amazon that actually run a different application store uh, Amazon's own. But anyway, for most of the vendors, that was not a comfortable arrangement, I guess. And uh, the European Commission decided that it wanted it to stop. Uh, Google now, of course, uh, appealed uh, the ruling. But also at the same time, it says that it will comply in the meantime. And uh, what it did is it... Indeed, unbundled uh, the store from everything else, exactly as the commission told it to. But also it announced that uh, soon it will start charging phone manufacturers who want to have a Play Store, but not Chrome and Search.
1: So are we going to be seeing these changes now? And if not, when can we expect to see the changes here?
0: It's coming really soon. So uh, the new way of this bundling, unbundled bundling, will apply to all devices activated on or after February 1st, 2019. So like in three months. But obviously the contracts are uh, closed uh, these days as well. The Verge uh, so uh, the confidential documents uh, that outline how the new licensing scheme will work after it comes into effect. And uh, here is what it looks like. So there are a few pricing tiers that depend on the country in which the phone goes on sale and the pixel density of the phone. This is basically a kind of clever way to divide phones into price categories, I would say. So vendors would have to pay the maximum, uh, that's $40 per device uh, for phones that are sold in the UK, Sweden, Germany, Norway, and the Netherlands that have a pixel density of more than 500 pixels per inch. So for example, the last uh, Samsung phone, uh, Samsung Galaxy S9 has more than 500 pixels. So basically this is the price for flagship phones. My phone, for example, a OnePlus 5T, it has uh, 400 something. So it it wouldn't be in the uh, highest uh, pricing tier. The least amount possible at the same time is just uh, $2.50 per device. But that uh, only works for uh, some low-end phones in uh, certain countries. Now, also the rumor is... uh, I guess predictably that uh, Google is offering additional agreements uh, to cover the licensing costs fully or partially if the vendor agrees to install Chrome and Google search on uh, on the devices. In addition to that, it can also receive money from Google as part of the search revenue sharing program. Uh, for that, uh, the manufacturer would need not just install uh, the browser, but also put it in the application dock uh, on the home screen. So like all the way down, there and in this case basically google would share the revenue it receives when the user searches for something on google and uh, looks at the advertisement so we are going to see what exactly changes after uh, february but uh, honestly so far it seems like we as consumers are not going to see that much of a change Now it is time for us to go for the first uh, pre-recorded interview of today. It was uh, recorded by uh, our founding editor Robin Wouters. Uh, It is with Gidi Pridor, uh, VP marketing at Travelperk, the startup that recently raised uh, a 44 million US dollars uh, round. So let's hear what it is all about. We will be back in about 10 minutes. Hey,
2: Robin Walters from Tech. I'm still at the SaaS talk Conference here in Dublin, and I'm sitting down with Giddy from Travel Perk. What's Travel Perk? Hey, uh, Robin. Travel Perk is a
3: SaaS platform for booking and managing all your business travel in one single place, from booking to accounting. Why is that so valuable? How big is that market? Well, did you ever travel for business? I guess you did. (laughs) All the time. So uh, my biggest perk as a marketer in this company is I don't need to explain the pain to anyone. Anybody that ever traveled for business understands that it sucks. It doesn't work the old way, whether you're just using leisure travel tools or using a travel agent. It really sucks. And we're trying to give companies a consumer-level tool that people want to use and don't just use because they have to. Starting from the UX, the inventory that they have, and all the
2: extra features that makes this enjoyable and worry-free. The inventory is, uh, is one of the most interesting things you mentioned to me uh, prior to this interview. You said you have the biggest inventory for business travel in the world. Is that correct? It's correct. It sounds bogus, but it's
3: completely correct. So we discovered that... Uh, most companies choose to invest in bells and whistles. In this feature or that feature, they say AI, AI and chatbots a lot. But uh, what people actually miss is uh, having all the options at their fingertips, which is why they have a, either an old corporate tool or their travel agent. But then they find a better option in Kayak, and they send screenshots and ask them, please book that for me. Travel is a very... Uh, Complicated industry from a technological standpoint, and actually having all these options and prices is extremely hard. So, we invest 80% of our engineering in actually getting all these options in one place, starting from the old travel agent tools like Amadeus and all these systems that a travel agent would show you. But adding to that, everything on the internet so, if it's on Kayak or Skyscanner, Expedia or Booking.com, or even Airbnb. You could find it on Travel Perk, pay for it on Travel Perk, book it, we fulfill it for you, have it in your reports, have the invoice, everything in one place. You never have to be redirected or leave the site. It's something that is
2: a very, very big milestone if you understand travel, especially for a company our size. Uh, What is your size as a company? Give me some some of the basics. Where are you based? How how big is the team, etc.? So the company
3: is headquartered out of Barcelona, Spain. We are about 160 people today and growing really fast. Uh, About two years ago, we were, I think, 15. SAS 1000 ranked us as the number one uh, fastest growing SAS company in Europe uh, this quarter. Number five in the world, number one in Europe. So about 160 people right now, will be over 200 by the end of the year. That's it. From a sales standpoint, the company has been growing in an average pace of 700% year on year since its establishment in 2015.
2: What does that mean in absolute numbers? Like can you share any of your revenue or, or booking numbers or anything like that? I can, but I'm not allowed
3: to. So uh, no, I prefer not to talk, not to actually expose the actual uh, uh, numbers, but putting uh, revenue aside, it's pretty amazing that uh, we just came out of beta somewhere early last year, and we're going to touch next year over 1
2: million travelers going through the platform, which is already big time. Absolutely. In uh, such a short uh, amount of time, that's uh, that's impressive. You've also raised quite a lot of money and you just announced this week. So maybe you can talk about uh, the financing as well.
3: Yep, actually this morning was one of the most uh, important days in the history of our little company, so uh, it makes me all emotional. I the company started in uh, you know our uh, chief product officer's uh, Javier's kitchen and uh, now uh, we raised 44 million dollars uh, today, announced today. That's following 21 million raised uh, this April. So in just 6 months it's over 65 million. What it shows is that the unit economics are really, really, really good, meaning everybody, our current, all the current uh, investors join both rounds, which is a really good sign. And it's because the unit economics make a lot of sense, meaning the machine is working, meaning if you put more wood in the fire, the fire is going to be much bigger. In our industry, it's not just about creating a beautiful app, Uh, it's actually operationally intensive, you need to have customer support in different places, different languages, expand to new countries, uh, investing in new integrations in order to have inventory in other markets you're going to, so we could definitely grow, definitely way faster, but there is an investment that comes with it, and we felt the time is now, the land grab is now, so we went bigger, faster, sooner than later
2: great. So talking about this international expansion that you mentioned, what do you think is the next uh, frontier for you? Which markets or countries do you think you'll go next, most likely?
3: So we uh, are already in the process of opening our uh, uh, first office outside of Barcelona in London. We already have our first employees there and already hired for a country manager in Berlin, which is going to be our second one. It's going to be followed by uh, Paris and two other cities uh, in Europe in the upcoming six months. The main reason for that is that we feel we need local presence. If a year ago we sold mainly to smaller companies, uh, this year we didn't only sell to more companies. We have about 1,500 customers today, but to much bigger cups, uh, companies that we have originally intended to sell to. So on our customer list, you could find companies like Farfetch or Adyen, two of the biggest IPOs in Europe this year, their customers. In order to serve companies like this that are already not startups, then you need to have local presence, you need to have your customer success guys go visit them, make sure the processes
2: work, that the rollout rollout, uh, is successful. So we need to be there close to them. That sounds logical. Um, In Barcelona itself, did you find this war on talent that everyone in tech is talking about uh, is also as intensive as in the main hubs that you're expanding to? it's a great question so it is when you're looking for good talent senior or junior
3: then yes it's a war out there but one of the big advantages of barcelona it's uh, it has a tech scene but it's uh, still happening it's still in early stages if you compare it to london to berlin or to tel aviv or a lot of cities in the states so you could actually get very good talent uh, technical talent excellent engineers in barcelona uh, and uh, there is less competition. There aren't a lot of customer uh, companies like us or like Typeform in Spain. There are a few. So there is an opportunity there, which is why you see more and more startups that are actually getting established in Spain or moving to Spain. Right,
2: quick final question. What's on the roadmap in terms of product? Where do you want to get to in the next 12 months? Say? So the first thing
3: is to continue in investing, invest in the core. I know it's a less, uh, it's a less sexy answer, but it's a lot of our DNA to be hyper, hyper focused on what matters and less on the bells and whistles. And we want to get our competitive advantage even bigger in the sense of whatever you're looking for is there. We just launched trains. It doesn't sound sexy, but we're the only travel management platform that actually has trains and don't, doesn't redirect you to Deutsche Bahn or another place. The revenue from trains, the margins are like zero. So why would we do that? Because in order to be the leader in Europe, you have to have trains. And we think about it for the long run. So the inventory across verticals, hotels, trains, uh, uh, flights will become much, much better in the year to come. And uh, uh, there'll be other big inv- uh, big investments like our mobile app that is currently in beta. But we have huge plans for this app and the whole travel companion aspect of us giving you the best answer you need at any point along your journey, connecting that to the other side of the company that is our human customer support, the highest rated one if you check G2 Crowd or any other review site, and that needs to find you on the road through the app in the exact moment with the right context. All of these things are going to be major investments for us in the 12 months to come.
2: Great. Well, it was a pleasure to meet you here at Sastok. Uh, congrats on the funding round and looking forward to seeing the evolution of the company. Thank you, Giddy. Thank you very much, Robin, for taking the time.
0: Hello, hello, hello again. We are back to our podcast number 92 at uh, tech.eu. The next news item uh, in our agenda is the Saudi money in the European tech. Uh, Natalie, can you tell us all you know about it?
1: Yeah, so, so this is a really kind of rapidly developing story. And we're recording this on Monday, October 22nd. And things might change by the time you hear this. But um, kind of to give you the backstory, so there's been a lot of discussions recently about this so-called Davos in the desert, Um, and I really wanted to unpack this a little bit and what does it mean from a European tech perspective? So Davos in the Desert refers to a conference, which is called the Future Investment Initiative. And it starts Tuesday the 23rd, um, so um, before before this podcast comes out, in the Riyadh Ritz-Carlton Hotel. And it was expected to have over 200 high-profile speakers. It's a thought leadership conference that's affiliated with Saudi Arabia's Public Investment Fund, which is one of the world's largest sovereign wealth funds and it has invested a ton in tech startups in Silicon Valley and beyond. So you might know them as the largest investor in SoftBank's Vision Fund, that vision fund which is is investing over a hundred billion US dollars in tech startups all across the world. And they also make their own private investments, notably in Uber. So some of the companies that have successfully received Saudi investment and products that you might use um, include Slack, WeWork and Uber. Uber of course is especially notable because in 2016, the company received a direct 3.5 US dollar billion cash infusion from the public investment fund. At the time, this was the largest investment ever made in a private company ever. So the managing director of Saudi Arabia's public investment fund actually now sits on Uber's board. So at the time, there was a lot of criticism um, and many argued, especially um, U.S.-based VCs, that by taking the money, Uber was endorsing the Saudi government and its stance on controversial gender and sexual rights issues. But fast forward to to this month, a lot of things have changed, um, especially when we recently learned that journalist Jamal Khashoggi went missing from the Saudi Arabian embassy in Istanbul. So on October 11th, Richard Branson, a participant and featured speaker at the Future Investment Initiative last year, but also this year, announced he was pulling out of this year's event due to suspected Saudi involvement and what later became the confirmed murder of um, Khashoggi, the Washington Post journalist. So this really set off a reverberation, and many of the other high-profile speakers, mostly from the U.S., have also pulled out. Uber CEO was really pressured very strongly to not attend. And it also reignited this conversation about Saudi Arabia's investment in foreign tech and what does it mean for the recipients of of that money, So I wanted to have a look at some of the Saudi public investment funds investments into European tech and also what the reaction has been, if any, um, because most of what I've been reading lately has become has come from the US, um, especially around um, the US tech leaders who were planning to appear at the summit. So kind of notably, the, the largest European um, name um, here is um, Joe Kayser, the president and CEO of Siemens, um, who is on actually the advisory board of this conference. Um, and as of um, today, um, he is currently undecided if he's going to attend or not. Also, Peter Thiel, as uh, many of you know from the Founders Fund, um, is also on the board of this conference. So what about Europe and has Saudi Arabia been funding tech here? And what has anyone had to say about it? Well, I had a look at our data and I was also cross-referencing it with data that's available from other sources, uh, CB Insights and others. Um, And it doesn't appear that the Public Investment Fund has invested directly in European tech at all, Uh, but they have invested through SoftBank's Vision Fund. So in the UK, they've invested in Improbable Software and Arm Holdings, which is a semiconductor company, which is owned entirely by SoftBank. and twenty But 25% of it is owned um, specifically by the Vision Fund. And there's also been recent reports that the Vision Fund is currently in talks with the Cambridge-based fintech Oak North for a possible investment. And this was very recent news um, in the last week or so. But outside the UK, um, the Vision Fund has invested big, uh, most notably in Berlin's Auto One, um, which is, of course, Europe's biggest startup after Spotify. Um, they received an investment of 460 million euros. Um, they've also invested in Roviant Sciences, a biotech company that's based partly in Switzerland.
0: That's quite uh, quite some digging you've done. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks for sharing this, but uh, did you see any of these uh, companies you just named uh, coming forward to say anything about uh, this money they received?
1: Actually, so I've looked for comments from the founders and CEOs of these companies who were largely expected to go to the future initiative event. Um, And I haven't seen any public statements about their attendance. And actually, as I was researching um, and writing this story over the weekend, the homepage of the future initiative event was changing um, kind of in real time while while I was um, researching it. So their list of confirmed speakers um, was completely Removed. But I have seen a report um, in the interim that Herman Narula, the CEO of Improbable, um, the UK based um, firm, um, will not be attending. But I didn't, but that was something that was made by a spokesperson, and he's not made any comments um, publicly so far yet. And so we'll have to wait and see if anyone else um, um, has anything to say this week about their attendance or if they happen to show up. It'd be very interesting because. Especially in the U.S., many of the recipients of the SoftBank financing were expected to attend. And um, we know they have also been quite vocal and saying that they will not be attending. But in Europe, it's, it's a little bit more quiet. And as for SoftBank, there are really some questions um, if they're going to consider taking um, money from this fund again. Um, currently, the public investment initiative is hoping to invest over $2 trillion um, in the next 10 years. Um, and I don't know um, if SoftBank, um, how the, how they feel um, about being involved with that.
0: I guess we're going to see it real soon. And I'm really great that this uh, conversation is uh, happening right now. As of the as for the companies uh, uh do we know that these are the only uh, Saudi investments in Europe or could there could there be more
1: Well kind of beyond the vision fund there are two other European companies that have been partly supported by Saudi Arabian investment So notably, Paris-based companies Deezer and Quantcube have both accepted investment from Kingdom Holding Company, which is the investment arm of Prince al bin Tal al-Sad. And in in Deezer's case, they've accepted quite quite a lot of money um, this year um, raising a Series F um, that was led led by Kingdom Holdings. But here's where it's really important to keep your Saudi princes straight. Um, And despite being a Saudi prince, um, Prince Alweed of Kingdom Holdings, is not affiliated with the public investment fund that was putting on this event. Um, and he was, But he was uh, involved in a different way um, in the sense that you might have remembered back in the spring when there were reports that uh, Crown Prince Mohammed um, bin Salad um, was rounding up a group of, uh, kind of characters that he was finding issue with, um, notably princes, business people, and bureaucrats. And he had, um, there were reports that he was holding some of them hostage in the Ritz-Carlton Hotel and Riyadh, which also happens to be the hotel where the future investment initiative event is also taking place. One of the most high profile people who was who was held there was Prince Alweed bin Tal Assad, who is the um, lead investor of Kingdom Holdings, who's who's invested in in Deezer and Quantcube. So of course he is not suspected of being involved um, in the activities that happened um in Istanbul, but um and his investments are not really under scrutiny here. But that's the other example of um Saudi investment in Europe that that we've been able to find.
0: Okay this is uh, yeah this is really interesting this is not something that is common knowledge uh, so far at least so but uh, if if we come if we come back to Europe uh, from Saudi Arabia how was uh, how was the reaction here I haven't really seen that much of uh, reaction from uh, the European uh, tech leaders so far is it is it actually like that or did I miss something
1: yeah. And, and that's kind of this uh, lack of, of response is what really kind of made me curious about researching and looking more into it. Because um, in the US, the leaders have actually been quite vocal and kind of disassociating themselves with the event. And, and we're not kind of um, trying to link any of the European tech leaders that have accepted um, this financing to anything nefarious. But um, I'm kind of surprised that these um, leaders haven't really come out strong here, especially at a time when Europe is often really prepared to come out um, and lead on things just like this, like Angela Merkel and the foreign ministers of the UK, France and Germany have done, especially on this issue and been very focal about kind of getting to the bottom of this. But in other sides, uh, Europe has always really kind of been very outspoken about privacy protection, regulation, um, just like in in your piece that, that you reported earlier. Um, and I'm surprised that it seems like everyone is kind of content to let this blow over. And I'm, I'm reminded by, uh, of a tweet by TechCrunch's Mike Butcher um, when the announcement of the Saudi SoftBank collaboration came out. Um, he asked on, on Twitter, what, what were people's reactions to this collaboration? And he got pretty much total radio silence from is 140,000 followers. Like people just really didn't have anything to say. Um, and I, I found that really interesting. And you've also heard nothing from the Auto One founders um, who were widely suspected to be in attendance, although it's not confirmed. But as they're recipients of the SoftBank investment and SoftBank was supposed to be there, um, they, they were also expected to be there as well. Um, Also, um, Hans Holger Albrecht, the CEO of Deezer, he's a very high profile um, person and his sister is Germany's minister of defense. And Deezer has just launched in the Middle East and notably in Saudi Arabia, but we haven't heard anything. And I thought that was something that was definitely worth looking into, but kind of deflating um, result there, I I suppose.
0: Yeah. So I guess the situation may change by the time this podcast is out uh, when the actual event starts so let's take an eye on it let's follow it and let's talk about it uh, next week just to see whether anything changes and whether anybody comes forward to talk In the meantime, uh, next thing, uh, we have uh, lined up for today's podcast is our second interview. Uh, this time it is the conversation with Ihor Zhadanov, the CEO and co-founder at uh, Riddle. And unlike uh, the interviewee in the previous conversation, uh, who raised 44 million in funding, Riddle, Uh, headed by Zhdanov, has been bootstrapping its way uh, since uh, a few years ago when it started. It has millions of uh, paying users around the world, but uh, it is uh, its conscious decision not to uh, raise funding, not yet at least. So uh, listen to the interview to learn more about uh, this approach and this stance, and we will be back in a few minutes with events and recommendations. Hello, uh, this is uh, Andre Degeler, journalist at EU, recording today in an actual skybox uh, at an actual uh, stadium uh, here in Lviv, which is uh, for today and tomorrow is home to the Lviv IT Arena conference, uh, where a lot of uh, Ukrainian investors, entrepreneurs, and uh, tech ecosystem players have uh, gathered to listen to talks, uh, talk to each other, share knowledge, party a little bit and generally have a good time. Today, I have a chance to catch up with uh, Igor Zhidanov, CEO and co-founder at uh, Riddle. Uh, Most of uh, Apple users, I think, that listen to us have at least heard about Riddle, but for the Android users among us, uh, Igor, can you please tell about yourself
4: and what Riddle is doing? Hello, Andrei. Thanks for having me today. Yes, at Riddle we do mobile applications focused on personal productivity and business. So ultimately, whatever saves you time or money or both with your smartphone, tablet is uh, our focus of interest. In total, we just celebrated the milestone for us, which is 100 million downloads across our portfolio on Apple App Store. We believe this is just the beginning and we want to build products that are useful for hundreds of millions of users.
0: Right. So how about yourself? When did you found the company and uh, what actually made you think of uh, this uh, product category at all?
4: So it was 2007 when Apple announced uh, iPhone and uh, it was a revolutionary device and everyone was, ex- was excited about it. And we got lucky and we got uh, the first device maybe like five days after start of official product launch. Then what happened, we immediately saw the gap. One of the gaps was that in 2007, on my iPhone, I could not read a book during my commute. And I was perfectly able to do it in 2003 with my pocket PC back in the days. So I was like staring at a device which is promising us to be the future of technology and personal computing. But uh, as of today, in that moment, I see that this is not so much of a future because it's not even the current stuff. Just uh, there are so many gaps at a time. So we decided to give it a kind of a go and try to build a product to read books and documents on the, on the iPhone. And actually, that made it into a tagline for the company, and hence the name of the company, Readle. And we still have this red logo, uh, red bookmark in our logo uh, as part of that story. And we launched our product in August 2007. Before you realize that, in a matter of a couple of months, I guess, we had more than 60,000 people who signed up for the product saying, yes, I have the same problem. Uh, Thank you, guys. I I enjoy it. And actually, in a way, we stumbled into running the business and starting the company because we really, really focused on fixing the problem first. And then, um, consequently, we ended up having a business, having uh, employees, and actually running that as, as a startup. So that understanding came out a little bit later.
0: So 11 years in, uh, what's the product line like now?
4: So in total, we launched 40 products in these 11 years. Only eight of those products survived. So 32 are uh, mistakes and lessons learned as of today. So we have products like PDF Expert, Scanner Pro, Calendars 5 um, for individual users. And we also moved uh, and expanded into B2B space when we sell to companies our product called Fluix. Which is a document management system for uh, mobile employees. And um, for us, this portfolio is, uh, it seems diverse, but ultimate users is the same. So our user would be someone who actually has a device in, in his possession and he or she wants to get most of the device right now. So instead of you having uh, this need to go back to the office and uh, finish this document, you'll, you should be able to do it like on the go whenever you are. And that was initial promise of the initial uh, vision of it. And we're pretty much still aligned with that today.
0: Is there such a thing for you as the main product in the line?
4: The main focus is the customer. So the products has their own technology cycles. And we, we do have uh, all our products are major milestones for us. So we don't have like much of a favorites or not, not least favorites products. But for us, the ultimate focus is the user. And the ultimate focus is the problem that we are solving. Even if you look into, let's say, Scanner Pro, the product is literally nine years old because we started and launched it in 2009. Internally, we are talking about six large generations of the product with being within the same umbrella. So we kind of reinvented the product five times, thinking, okay, what is the right, more than proper way to use your iPhone camera to capture documents you need and be able to to deal with them? So therefore, it's uh, not just the eight products that you did. It's literally hundreds of uh, quite substantial changes, iterations, and experiments within the existing product line that we pay attention to.
0: So I saw you on stage today at the business track of the conference. Uh, uh, What did you talk about?
4: I was talking about uh, how do you build products that can compete with products from Adobe, Citrix and and Microsoft. And um, to make it short, I think the biggest uh, differentiator that any smaller company can uh, can deliver is attitude towards customer and integrity between the behavior of the company, the behavior of the product and the way you do business. Because if you're a large company at scale, it is extremely difficult to provide that level of customer service and customer satisfaction to customers compared to a smaller one that, that actually takes this as a priority. So therefore, even for us, we had cases when uh, companies uh, were canceling their contacts with uh, Citrus and Microsoft and uh, choosing our products over those uh, big ones just because they felt uh, being taken care of appropriately uh, to their expectations.
0: Speaking of bigger companies and smaller companies, how big is Riddle today?
4: So we are a team of 137 employees located in about uh, nine cities across the globe today. So the main headquarters is still in uh, Ukraine, Odessa. Uh, But we are currently hiring pretty much across the globe. So I'm, I'm interviewing people as we talk this week um, in London, Dublin, uh, Boston, Silicon Valley and Berlin. So you're a pretty
0: active player on the market with your product with uh, this 100 million downloads and all that. But uh, would you characterize yourselves as an active player on the ecosystem, in the ecosystem of Ukraine, in the entrepreneurial and startup ecosystem? And what does it mean for you in general having this ecosystem around?
4: I think the biggest contribution we could build for Ukraine here is uh, to become a role model. So Ukraine desperately needs uh, to have more success stories, more role models, more uh, real-life examples on how you can build something sustainable, how you can build it out uh, out of Ukraine, how you can scale it up and be truly competitive and focus on long-term uh, value. So and as a society, I think we are in a position that we desperately need these role models. And we see more and more companies actually popping up in Ukraine that can become uh, such models. So one of the examples actually is for us be, to be vocal about what we do and how we do and how we run business. And uh, I hope that for people who are with the company, who are our friends and peers, so at least some of the lessons that we've learned. Like in these like 11 years will be valuable for them not to spend 11 years uh, to get the same outcome, but maybe spend uh, like five or three or one. So besides that, what we do uh, is actually is uh, advisor and mentoring. So there are maybe five or six companies in Ukraine right now that uh, we help with uh, our expertise just to make sure that these guys are actually uh, can succeed. So we don't structure it as a formal kind of engagement, but this is something that we are always happy to do. Like when there is an experience that we have and we can share, we will share.
0: And you certainly are a poster kid of uh, the Ukrainian ecosystem. You're usually referred to as one of the success stories. Uh, Recently in our podcast, we talked about another success story from uh, Eastern Europe, a company called Vinted. If you heard about it, uh, it's it's a company uh, founded uh, in the Baltics. Uh, It has raised a lot of money and it is pretty successful. Uh, But the point of the discussion was that it turned out at some point uh, that Uh, vinted had a very tough period going on and uh, the company actually almost went bankrupt but because they are a poster child of the ecosystem it was never publicized like no one actually talked about uh, these uh, issues that the company had and the only reason i think we know about it now is that everything is already behind them and they're doing well again did you have this uh, kind of uh, time periods in your history and what was it like and what did you do
4: so i think that each company at some point uh, goes through the challenge to reinvent themselves and to figure out what's next so like from that angle yes we did realize i think like four Years ago, or something uh, that uh, we are about to kind of to solve bigger problems in technology, and we want to solve them, and we believe that we are in capacity to do so. And in a way, we kind of shifted a little bit our focus from being um, a company that builds productivity products uh, into a company that tries to solve a larger technology problem. And hence, the current focus of us is one of our products called Spark is pretty much addressing the problem called email. And you're talking about like wh- roughly 1 billion people uh, using uh, email at work these days on the planet. And I think that it's safe to say that roughly 1 billion pe- of those people suffer in some form because of technology that is behind the email it's like 30 years old. And in the age of 2018, using something that was uh, available in, in late 70s is tricky. So uh, we decided to kind of to get additional challenge and then focus on, on bigger problem than we ever thought we could handle. And therefore, for us, it was a huge. Existential challenge and how do we build a company? How do we run the company from now on? How do we structure it? Do we finally need to raise capital? Do we still go uh, bootstrapped? So these are challenges and questions that we have ongoing as it as it goes right now. Uh, that said, I think we are privileged, so we didn't not have a, kind of you know like three weeks before we 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 are bankrupt um Situation, and mostly, I think that's thanks for us to be able to kind of maintain integrity and thinking on customer first and thinking on long term since day one. Because when you have that, your customers become become your safety area. You come, your, your, your customers become the base who who can support the company no matter what. So therefore, we try new stuff. We fail a lot. We we experiment a lot, but uh, we've been privileged not to have the really existential crisis for the company
0: did you think it could be connected to the fact that you never raised money and you never had to kind of spend someone else's money in a way
4: um partly yes because basically you you learn yourself to spend responsibly so you uh, we are okay to spend a lot on 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 projects and we do we do spend a lot of money into new initiatives but uh, there is something uh, this kind of internal accountability and sense of responsibility for us that yes if we are spending things and, uh, and doing things uh, nicely we want this to be meaningful and we want to make sure that this is a priority for us so part of it yes But that said, I absolutely realize that some businesses are impossible to be built uh, without uh, external funding. And therefore, um, for us, we didn't uh, need that. But for some companies, it's just the only way to go if you're building something like Facebook or Instagram. Uh, Good luck doing this in the Bootstrap model.
0: Hey, This makes a lot of sense. Igor, uh, thank you very much for joining me today. Enjoy the rest of the conference. Yep, thanks for having me. This was Andre Degeler here in Lviv at uh, the Lviv IT Arena uh, conference uh, for tech.eu. Take care. Welcome back to the podcast of tech.eu number 92. It's still me, Andre Degeler, joined by Natalie Novik. Uh, Natalie, it's your turn to talk now. Uh, can you tell more about uh, the events that are coming up in Europe in the following weeks?
1: Sure. So, um, well, first, this week, um, I'm going to be heading to the Linux Foundation's Open Source Summit Europe. um, And next week, I'm going to Edinburgh's Startup Summit on October 31st. So look forward for um, TechEU commentary and live tweeting of those events. Also, next week is Noah London, which we talked about on the podcast last last week. Um, and in terms of the startup summit, and and Noah also falls on on Halloween, so I'm not sure if I'm going to wear a costume to that or not. But I think I have a unicorn hat lying around um, somewhere. <laughs> but um, Andre, are we going to find you anywhere um, in the next coming weeks?
0: Not really, no. For me, it's just the local ecosystem, as we discussed uh, last week, which means my couch and uh, probably five to six uh, square meters surrounding it. So generally, uh, my next uh, thing that I would be going to is uh, slush. Uh, in Helsinki. But in the meantime, uh, I will keep an eye open for interesting events uh, here in Amsterdam. I'm pretty sure I will uh, find some and uh, this is where it's going to be most likely that uh, you could find me.
1: Great. So, well, if we're looking forward on the calendar, um, November, really the big event for November is Web Summit in Lisbon, which is taking place from the 5th to the 8th. Um, and I will be there. Um, and I, and I think Robin from tech.eu will also be there as well for, for a few days. So I'm really looking forward to seeing that. Um, and then the other event that I wanted to talk to you all about was on November 12th, which is in Paris. And there's a really interesting thing taking place. So it's the inaugural GovTech Summit, which is, A really cool event put on by an organization called Public, but is also supported by French President Emmanuel Macron, the Paris mayor, and Hidalgo, um, and the European Commission. So what they're doing is they're gathering together more than 90 or so international speakers, European leaders, innovators, and startups, most importantly, to really talk about and explore how new technologies can improve public service and democratic practice. So it's free to attend um, if you're not Corporate. So, if you, it's a really important topic. If you're in town, try to make it. The link um, is in the show notes. Um, if you're in Paris on November 12th, it really will be um, a great opportunity. And it would be awesome to have as many startups there to be able to support that side of the conversation as possible so these events and more are on our website and if you have a suggestion of an event to add let us know um the link is also in the show notes there's a little form you can fill out and um, we'd be happy to share that on the podcast
0: Natalie, i have to ask you something you are so uh, enthusiastic about the Gulf tech summit now have you ever been to a government held uh, technology conference that was not boring
1: I actually find them fascinating. And every time um, you have the opportunity to put where government is actually open to having startups and having community leaders in the room, um, I think is, is a great opportunity. And last year um, in Tallinn, the Global Entrepreneurship Network had a really great startup summit. It was in part of um, three days of activities where they did a policy hack. Um, but one day it was dedicated to startups. And I, um, I spoke there and presented some of my research. And I actually got in touch with a number of different people working in municipalities And they were very excited to learn more about startups and really understand um, what startup ecosystems are all about. So I think they are very open to learning, um, but it's often difficult to bring these parties together together. Um, And that's why I think the the GovTech Summit is so exciting. You also have a lot of um, great people that are going to be there to help facilitate that conversation. So hopefully um, something great comes out of it. Unfortunately, though, I won't be there.
0: Okay. Well, great. I cannot, I cannot disagree uh, with this, of course. I mean, it always makes sense to bring, uh, bring these parties together. But honestly, the fact uh, that uh, these people all these years in are still trying to learn about what startup ecosystems are kind of uh, tells uh, uh, something about the speed of uh, the development of uh, uh, the governmental uh, part of things around uh, this topic.
1: Yeah. And, and that's why maybe, maybe you'll appreciate my recommendation for this week. So I am um, recommending this week, um, this piece, um, by Alex Pereira at the Alpha Report called The Clash Between Technology and Politics. This is just really on this theme. Um and what it 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 ties in somewhat to to the um, suggestion of the event I mentioned earlier, the GovTech GovTech Summit, but also to speaks to your skepticism. Um, and in this piece, he makes this claim, and I think a lot of people in Europe feel similarly. Um, namely that politicians and regulations are about to end the startup world. Um, And when it comes to this issue, I'll admit that I tend to stay more on the positive side of things. Maybe I'm too optimistic identifying all the areas where I think there's really been incredible progress such as easier business regulation, startup visas, ongoing conversations like this GovTech Summit but I know it's not easy and I know there's a lot of problems. And even though I tend to see most of the good things, it's, I think it's really helpful and also super great of Alex to maybe bring me um, back down to earth a little and kind of highlight some of the areas where things really need to continue working. Um, it's, it's really in a lot of ways a, a reality check and a, it's a long read. Um, But he pulls out some of the biggest challenges and then kind of boldly goes on to make some predictions about what's coming next if government and the tech community can't become aligned and can't work together um, more feasibly. Um, So he addresses a number of super big topics like automation gay gig economy, AI, et cetera. Um, And he highlights some of the areas where regulation actually is creating this bottleneck um, when it comes to innovation and also places where it doesn't quite go quite enough. far enough, um, or is going somewhat in a misdirection. Um, what, what's great about this piece especially is he's bringing in tons of data from other sources, um, to support all the points that he's making. Some very well presented, very thought provoking. Um, and I really would encourage everyone to have a look at that.
0: Yeah, that's a great piece. And I really like, uh, sort of skeptical standpoint on many things and uh, particularly on this. But uh, then, of course, we should remember that there are good things and Natalie has just reminded us about them. So my recommendation for today is a bit of a more sort of applied thing, I would say. And this is called the language of technology. This is a series of articles uh, by Martin Bryant, uh, the former editor-in-chief of The Next Web, a journalist, a consultant, an educator, a media person. Uh, he is writing uh, this uh, series on LinkedIn and uh, uh, the whole serious thing is actually part of uh, the platform's effort uh, to attract more quality content, uh, which means that a bunch of people now uh, simultaneously started uh, this kind of article series and uh, any uh, LinkedIn user can subscribe to them and uh, receive notifications when the new article in this series is published. So basically, this is an alternative to email newsletters uh, in the form of uh, LinkedIn posts. So anyway, Martin is uh, uh, writing about uh, how language works in the world of technology. And this is a fascinating topic. And he starts uh, with a thing he calls the micro pitch. Uh, This is the first uh, post in the series. And here is what micro pitch is. If you're working on a product, uh, one way or another, a micro pitch would be something uh, that you have ready at all times. It's a short sentence that has to perfectly sum up what your product does. But at the same time, it has not to be a list of the features of the product. So Martin gives a pretty good example of uh, Facebook's micro pitch. That's the one you can see on many pages and Facebook. It reads like this, quote, uh, Facebook helps you connect and share with the people in your life. So that's a pretty good micro pitch. Uh, It does not necessarily list all the features that Facebook has from check-ins to photos to all that kind of uh, crap, including the last scandals but it kind of sums up what Facebook is about. We at Tech.eu also have our micro pitch and this is the sentence that I open every podcast with that reads as tech.eu is Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is what we are. I hope you already got yours if you are a product person or an entrepreneur but no matter if uh, you did or not go ahead and check uh, Martin's uh, first piece, subscribe to the series. I believe there is going to be much more uh, goodness uh, coming from him. It's a biweekly uh, series. Uh, so, yeah, go ahead and LinkedIn, and I will uh, leave the link in the show notes.
1: So, I mean, no offense to Martin, who does incredible work all the time, but I don't know about kind of spending more time on LinkedIn. Like it it does seem they've really been pushing uh, for users to be spending more time on on their site. And it really does feel like the longer you're on LinkedIn, the longer you're spending time at work. Um, And I'm not Uh, so sure.
0: No. Well, I mean, normally I don't spend time on LinkedIn like at all. LinkedIn is like just uh, the way for me to check where a person is working pretty much. And uh, but... uh, from other people and uh, from people coming from very different kind of backgrounds and uh, doing different things, I have heard over the past couple of years, actually, that LinkedIn is becoming a better place to be in terms of posts and content uh, you can find there. And for some people, which was like totally mind blowing for me, it became a viable alternative uh, of uh, Facebook and Twitter. So they would just kind of spend the time only there. I'm pretty far uh, from there. and I would still probably prefer to get uh, these kind of posts uh, either in my RSS reader or in my in my email newsletter. But I do appreciate uh, the effort that LinkedIn is making. I do appreciate that they actually hire journalists and uh, editors to kind of form this uh, news digest and at least to uh, try to keep, uh, keep the users informed. So this is, this is part I actually do like. I think it's a good idea.
1: Don't get me wrong there is a lot of really good commentary and content on LinkedIn and a number of European VCs are actually doing quite a lot to kind of get their their name and their their firms out there and and doing a, a lot of educational role there. But it does seem uh, that you do find a lot of these kind of grow influencers or people that are very kind of highly self-promotional. So it, it's it's kind of a, a delicate balance, I'd say, um, because you do have a lot of people that have very effectively hacked the medium to kind of just turn it into a numbers game. Someone recently saying, like pointing out there something like Ten thousand LinkedIn followers, and it's like the the social graph has really been broken. Here is that kind of it used to be a place where people were connecting with people they actually knew in real life, um, and it really has expanded far beyond that. Who knows um, what the eventual endpoint of that looks like? But it it is it is quite fascinating what's what's happening over on LinkedIn, um, and you should check it out because they're really is quite a lot of conversation happening there.
0: Yeah, but yeah, what what is uh, certainly true I think is that uh, LinkedIn requires a lot of kind of uh, hygiene in uh, the way you form uh, you form your feed. And uh, since a lot of us, uh, myself included, uh, have for a long time just kind of blindly accepted all sorts of requests coming from there just to get rid of that uh, red mark in the corner. And then what it results in is that you see all these uh, things that you that you just mentioned uh, in your feed. I, I, I'm still yet to uh, get to, to my LinkedIn and try to do some- some spring cleaning over there, but uh, probably the more good content, the more good stories I will see there, uh, the more likely I'm going to be to go and try to use it uh, the way uh, that the service wants me to.
1: So be sure to add Andre on LinkedIn.
0: Yeah, go ahead. Now I actually try to at least understand who the people adding me are. And I kind of started uh, since recently, uh, pressing the ignore button instead of accept button. But Natalie is also on LinkedIn, and she definitely appreciates uh, lots of uh, uh, requests right this is a great uh, place to wrap uh, this up Uh, this is it for our podcast. we are just uh, in time i guess Uh, i hope you enjoyed listening to us today Uh, don't miss our new episodes Uh, subscribe on our favorite podcast app uh, including spotify just look for tech.eu podcast tell everyone you know and for whom it would be relevant to about the podcast and follow our updates on twitter at tech underscore eu and on facebook also on LinkedIn. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at tech.eu. Natalie, thank you so much for joining today. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you, Andre. Have a great week.
0: Enjoy the rest of your week, and uh, talk to you next Wednesday. Bye bye.